Hi, this is Ian Wolfe, producer, host and writer for Diffusion Science Radio. I need your support. You can support Diffusion by downloading a free Audible audiobook from audibletrial.com science. Just for getting you to try them out, Audible will pay me a small reward. Or you could click on an Amazon link on diffusionradio.com and Amazon will kick a few percent of what you pay them my way. Please, make a donation directly with the PayPal button on www.diffusionradio.com. Diffusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. (laughs) (laughs) Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we inject weird and wonderful science directly into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, tracking pollution on Earth from space. But first up, here's the news. Mind-controlled cockroaches for a better tomorrow. Animals with antennae are just asking to be remote controlled. After people worked out how to remotely control cockroaches by stimulating their antennae with tiny electrical signals for left and right, Still others worked out how to hook up electroencephalogram EEG readers to be able to operate remotely controlled devices. It was only a matter of time before somebody combined the two technologies. When the electrical signal reaches the cockroach's antenna, it tricks the cockroach into feeling like it's bumped into something, so it moves in the opposite direction. Li Guanyi, a postgraduate student at China's Shanghai Zhaotong University, won second place in the 2015 IEEE Robotics and Automation Society Students Video Contest with his video of his cockroach mind-controlling invention. In Lee's video, using just his mind and an EEG brainwave reading headset connected to a computer system communicating by radio, he guided the cockroach, which is wearing a circuit board and a battery backpack, around an S-shaped bend and then guided it around a zigzag path accurately. The device was exhibited at the 2015 IEEE International Conference on Robotics and Automation. Along with his mentor, Associate Professor Zhang Dingguao, Li's next step is to control a small army of cockroaches with several people controlling them at the same time. First place in the Robotics and Automation video competition was won by a Turkish student whose video was entitled Robots Are On Our Side showing robots riding in lights and playing rock, scissors, paper. Third place was won by a student whose robot can make pizzas by copying how a human makes them. I've reported previously on Diffusion how the Backyard Brains Company sells a kit for $100 that lets you build a backpack for cockroaches that wires up their antenna in a way that they swear is humane to allow you to control the cockroaches' movements using an app on your phone that communicates with a backpack by Bluetooth. This has been around for, oh, more than a year. The kit builds on the original research into controlling cockroaches and moths by stimulating their antennae with a remote control signal. 
every time the research into remote controlled insects has come up in the news, and it's come up several times, the rationalisation of future usefulness that they explain to the media has always been about using them to find survivors of earthquake disasters trapped in collapsed buildings. Of course, the researchers usually haven't taken any steps towards helping earthquake survivors beyond refining remote control of the insects. At Texas A&M University, they bypassed the antennae and embedded microelectrodes straight into the nerve clusters, controlling each leg for direct control of American cockroaches. Ironically, they have only 60% accuracy in directing the cockroaches. They published a paper in Interface, Journal of the Royal Society, titled Locomotion Control of Hybrid Cockroach Robots. Finally, electrical engineers at North Carolina State University are actually working on remote control cockroaches that could be used in disaster zones to seek out humans trapped under rubble for real. Unlike the Chinese cyber roaches, these are giant Madagascan hissing cockroaches, which allow for larger backpacks. While they're guided by remote control instead of an EEG brainwave reader, the North Carolina cockroach backpacks also come with three directional microphones to determine the direction of the sounds of people hidden in the rubble of a disaster zone and automatically steer the cybernetically enhanced cockroach right towards them. Automated cockroaches. They expect to have a network of 10 to 15 enhanced insects collecting sound data that a computer can integrate to tell them exactly where the people are trapped. Another type of backpack is fitted with a single microphone to capture sound from any direction, which can be wirelessly transmitted, perhaps to emergency workers who could actually do something. The cockroaches are not going to dig you out of the rubble. Maybe if the backpacks had GPS, they could help people be located by rescuers. Well, the backpacks may also be able to relay sounds back to emergency workers, so perhaps they could install tiny speakers as well, so you could hear reassuring words from the rescue roaches. The team at North Carolina State University have also developed an electric fencing technology to stop the cockroaches running away. Uh, I mean, wandering out of the disaster zone. Their next step is to fit tiny Geiger counters to the backpacks so they can search for leaks at nuclear power plants. They don't expect to have the rescue roaches ready to search for people in rubble for another five years. I know that if I were trapped in a collapsed building, the sight of a small army of annoyed cockroaches with glowing backpacks would make me feel like help was on the way. Maybe the backpacks could have little containers of reviving brandy like miniature St. Bernard's. Giant Robot Battle Two giant human-piloted fighting robots are set to face off in a duel in one year's time. After a Japanese robotics company, Sudobashi Heavy Industries, accepted a challenge from American firm Megabots. The American Megabot Mark II weighs six tons, is four and a half metres tall, and fires one kilogram paint cannonballs at over 160 kilometres per hour. Why? Because it can. The Japanese Karatas is just over three metres tall and fires ball-bearing BB bullets rather than paintballs. The challenge was relayed through YouTube, and here's how it sounded. Welcome to Megabot World Headquarters, the densest concentration of cutting-edge robotics research this side of the Mississippi. 
This is where the Megabot Mark II was born. Born to the fires of American innovation and determination. We just finished tightening the last bolts on the Mark II, America's first fully functional, giant piloted robot. And because we're American, we've added really big Meet the Mark II, 12,000 pounds of gasoline-powered fury. She's piloted by a team of two and can fire three-pound paint cannonballs at speeds of over 100 miles an hour. But the Mark II isn't the first giant fighting robot in the world. Sudobashi Heavy Industries beat us to the punch with the Kuradas, a 9,000-pound single-seater giant fighting robot with twin Gatling guns, a hyper-advanced targeting system, and a full heads-up display. Sudobashi, we have a giant robot, you have a giant robot. You know it needs to happen. We challenge you to a duel. Both of our robots will need modifications to become combat ready. Prepare yourselves and name the battlefield. In one year, we fight. Come back in a year's time to watch them rumble. You're listening to Ian Wolf on Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. Next, Todd the T-1000 by Jonathan Coulton. Sometimes I kind of miss the old XJ9 that we used to call Jane. Really good at cleaning and we got along fine so I couldn't complain. Lately she'd been getting tangled up in the shag rug and finally one wheel just wouldn't spin. So we said our goodbyes and I traded her in. This new one's kind of creepy, makes me shudder. Muscles and they ripple and slide under translucent skin. Sometimes you stand for hours looking into the mirror and flexing like some guy at the gym. And I'm easily ten inches short. Favorite chair and dares me and when I look over. 
picture like the trunk of a tree And the left one's a saw I cut the couch in half and then I smashed the TV With my big smashy claw He's standing still and silent I can't tell what he's thinking He blinks a single glowing red eye So I give him a shove and then Todd starts to cry That was Todd the T-1000 by Jonathan Coulton. You can hear more by going to jonathancoulton.com. Brian Lim from the Delta V Space Alliance is the founder of the Orbit Oz Space Entrepreneur Meetup and co-founder of Hypercube, a startup to track pollution on Earth from space. He's just returned from a trip that included discussions with NASA and a visit to Richard Branson's private island. I began by asking him, what is Hypercube? Hypercube is a business where we are building satellites to track pollution on Earth from space. We're designing a kind of satellite that actually uses a kind of sensor called hyperspectral. Now, hyperspectral is really cool because basically whenever I take a photo with a hyperspectral camera, I can determine the chemical composition of each pixel. Each individual pixel. So you can tell all sorts of things about not just what things look like, but what's what processes are happening and what you're looking at. Yeah, so let's just say I had it on a phone and I took a photo of a fish. Not only can I tell you which part of the fish is fresh, I can tell you which part of the fish is rotting. So, you know, you know it's a fish and you also know which part is bad. So you know which one to cut up. We want to do the same thing from space on Earth. So if you look at a farm, is there enough fertilizer? Is there enough water? Is something affecting the crops? You know, and if you look at the oceans, um, what's there causing the algae blooms that are destroying ecosystems? So that's a lot of data. So you've got these, you're going to have all these satellites. So how many satellites do you expect to send up? You know, that's a, it's a question that we haven't figured out yet. We're definitely measuring it in the hundreds. I think the, the last estimate was about 400 satellites. So 400 satellites with hyperspectral cameras that are looking at everything on the surface and finding out all sorts of nitty gritty on what the, everything is doing. That's pretty much it, yes. And so you'll be processing this data and selling it. That's right. So we definitely want to sell the data to the people who need it. However, there's a part in of us that wants to make this data free. And we believe that we, if we make it free, then everybody can see for themselves what each other is doing to the planet. And we'll have the information we need to start really fighting for our planet's health and well-being. And I know there's two other parts of this story. There's the amazing networking you've been doing to start up your business and get it all going. And there's the research into what it's all about. So should we talk about your networking? You've just come back from Richard Branson's private island and you've been talking to NASA. Yes, I have been doing both. So I think the first thing is for Richard Branson, what happens about two and a half years ago, um, I received a cold call. It was a lady who was moving from Scotland to Sydney, Australia, three weeks into the country, single woman, trying to get her foot off the ground, cold calling for a living. She couldn't sell me anything to save her life but she was kind, she was polite, and she actually asked me, Brian, can you help me? And the long story short of it is that I did. 
a year and a later, she married a wonderful Australian. She came back to me and said, I'm marrying this wonderful Australian. He told me to see Richard Branson. The three of us agreed to run an event on the island. Brian, you were kind to me when I first came and you're doing cool stuff in space. Come. And of course I said, no. <laughs> no, I definitely went. It was an amazing experience. I met a lot of other people there who are equally inspiring to make a difference in the world. And, you know, Richard Branson is a really wonderful guy. He's really down to earth, really friendly. And he really believes in doing well by doing good. And obviously, he's very interested in space. Yes, he is. I mean, he has Virgin Galactic. And so he really understands that to do what we need to do, we need to be out there. And he wants, he's a believer that we will eventually colonize other planets and star systems. And this is part of him seeing that true for us. So what was it like on the island? It is a tropical paradise. Everything was there, was provided for. We could have anything we want. To give you an idea of um, how incredible it was, um, each of us basically had our own bungalow while we were on the island. One of my friends got up late after a party. She called up room service and go, hey, I'm a little hungry. What can I get? I can't find a menu. And the response is, whatever you want. It, it, it really goes to show he spends enormous amount of effort making sure his guests are taken care of and every need is catered so that they can recover and you know have the great conversations that happen on his island that make great businesses happen. So it wasn't all just fun? No, as my, it, it, it was a lot of fun, but it was a lot of work, you know, talking to people and understanding where the opportunities go from there. And then you went to talk with NASA. Yes, we've been talking back and forth a lot with NASA about what we're building. And, you know, those conversations are still ongoing. So I don't want to mention too much about it. But suffice to say that um, interest out of NASA and we were going to figure out and we we're trying to figure out how to make this work. And you've been to the Singularity University as well. Yes. So Singularity University was started by Peter DeMendez and Rekha as well. They're, they're both very good people. They are set up an institution to try and train thought leaders to impact a billion people positively using exponential technology. And it was an incredible experience doing the 10-week graduate studies program with them. Um, I learned a lot about what the technology is going, a lot of grand challenges and problems being solved in the world. And I make contacts with many organizations, that, including the UN, the Ashoka Foundation, Coca-Cola, Lowe's, and a whole bunch of others who really are into this thing and believe that we can make a difference in the world at the same time. And at the Orbit Oz Space Entrepreneur Meetup, you were giving us an explanation of your understanding of the current space market and how it relates to your chosen startup. And you started with the eight verticals of new space. Yeah, so space isn't just about rockets. It isn't just about satellites. Um, it isn't just about stuff we put on the ground and on to communicate within. The industry is much larger than that. And I really wanted people to have a sense of the breadth of it. So every, there are discussions, yes, about how we do asteroid mining. There's discussions on how do we do solar power from space. Now, whether we'll have that in the next 5, 10, 15, 20, or 30 years, that's something I think all of us can debate upon. But there are people working on it, and it's important to know what's out there and the landscape of the industry. You talk about verticals of space. So what does that mean? What is a vertical? Well, if you look at the space industry as a whole, you can categorize them. So, you know, there's guys who are doing launch services. There's those building satellites. There's those doing Earth observation, power, mining, and so forth. So those are the verticals. Right, right. So you had things like spacecraft and launch services and in-space services and, and uh, energy and all sorts of things. Yes. 
You're talking about technology writing Moore's Law. Yes. Yes. So there's a lot of technology that's now writing Moore's Law's curve. You know, synthetic biology, robotics, artificial intelligence, uh, sensors and networks. What we have today is that because technology is rapidly accelerating, a lot of things we thought impossible are now doable. It's important to understand how the pace is coming along. You know, so if you were to take 10 paces forward, so one step, two step, you've crossed 10 paces. But if you were to take one one step, two, four, eight, 16, 32, you've crossed over a thousand steps by the end of it. And it's important to realize this because if you don't understand that that exponential curve is coming, you're going to miss the boat. And you mentioned 6D's exponential framework? The 6D exponential framework was actually created by uh, Peter Demendis in his book, uh, Abundance. So it was a model that on how to create an exponential business. So additional material has been written about it in a book called The Exponential Organization by Salim, who's a good friend of mine. And these materials really serve as the basis of how do you look at organizations, technologies and skills that will become relevant going forward. Is that Cooper's Law as well? So Cooper's Law is specifically deals with bandwidth over a wireless spectrum. So it basically says that given in a given spectrum, the amount of bandwidth in that spectrum will double every 30 months. Okay, so if you put Cooper's Law and Moore's Law together... You are going to get some very interesting opportunities. So imagine... Your satellite is, has a camera, it takes a photo, it's a 10 meg file. It takes a while to get down, but it's doable. But if you leave that alone, the amount of bandwidth to actually ha- bring the photo down will increase, so it comes down faster. And the amount of processing, you can do more to the photo in orbit before you do it, and it, bringing it back down. And so if you look at it, eventually it'll be instead of a 10 meg photo, it'll be a 100 meg photo, then we'll be doing video, and then we'll be doing you know, high-speed cameras, and we'll have some other interesting things pop up. You were talking about organic computers. Organic computing is a really interesting and and novel field that's coming up. And what happens is that in the singularity concept by Ray Kurzweil, he simply says that the number of basically transistors and interconnect networks will be on power to the human brain in a particular point in time. So we've already created synthetic biological life forms, which actually can start processing minute amount of data, just in the sense that I create a bacteria that does X. It's a behavior that's been programmed to do. It wouldn't be beyond our comprehension at some point in the future that we can start building organic computers that actually perform more complex behaviors. So if you look at where it's going, the technology stack, it's something you would really see as a real machine or device that can be used somewhere in the next five to 10 years. So we could be sending them into space. That's right. It's very easy to go build a business that actually you know, takes care of you and your family. Um, in this day and age, it's a lot easier to get a good job versus, you know, everybody had to be a farmer back in the day. So we're very fortunate and lucky. I think going forward, a lot of what we know is going to be changing. And I really would like people who listen to this podcast to consider that you can do more to make a difference for the world. These frameworks, this technology, the reason why I'm willing to do this podcast and other things is to encourage individuals to look at all these things and use it to actually make a bigger difference in the world. When I was being taught by a friend from the Ashoka Foundation, she gave a very simple model about entrepreneurs. And these are about entrepreneurs who make a difference in the world. 99% of them are what we call products and services. They make a service or a product, basically maintaining an industry. 
uh, less than one, the remaining 1% is split into two groups. The first is the disruptive system thinkers, and they are the ones who invent things like 3D printing, you know, where they create a new technology or service that disrupts multiple industries and basically redefines e economics. The last category and is called the framework change maker. The framework change maker exists probably less than a dozen individuals every decade, very small group. And the idea for these individuals is that you don't need a lot of money to do an incredible impact on the globe. So Mother Teresa, Mother Luther King, you know, even the guy who founded Wik Wikipedia is in this category where for relatively small sums, um, they have created global impact that's unmeasurable effectively because it's so massive. We now live in a time where anyone who's willing can participate in becoming a disruptive systems thinker or a framework change maker. And I really hope that people actually take on the challenge of becoming these kinds of, of individuals. And if people want to look for you online, is there a website you'd like them to check out? Sure. So please visit www.deltavspacehub.com. Or you can come and find me on my Twitter at boldbrian. Well, Brian Lim, thank you very much. Thank you very much for having me. That was Brian Lim, co-founder of the Orbitoz Space Entrepreneur Meetup, member of the Delta V Alliance, and co-founder of Hypercube, a startup business to track pollution on Earth from space. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Would you like to hear your voice on radio? Would you like to join us? We need more people contributing stories to Diffusion. You can send your contributions, opinions, congratulations, helpful suggestions, and donations to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. And please do send me an email so I know you're listening and you'd like to hear more episodes. Please like the Diffusion Science Radio page on Facebook and rate us on iTunes. Follow me on Twitter at Ian Wolf. Checking production was Charles Willock. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia on the community radio network, including two Triple H in Hornsby, Karingai, two NVR in Ambaka Valley, two X in Canberra, and three NBR in the Mallee border districts of Victoria and South Australia. Diffusion is syndicated globally on the National Science Foundation's Science360 internet radio station and also on astronomy.fm. Subscribe to our podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. And check the website for videos and links about this week's show. With my broken computers, I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know, and to appreciate. When you study science, you may go on field trips. You discover the marvelous interrelationships between all living things. You learn to read the history of the Earth as it is written in rocks and fossils. You find out what makes things tick. Everything from a molecule to a living organism. In the study of science is found the most useful and satisfying knowledge of man. Knowledge of his physical world, its past, its present, and its future. And in your moments of relaxation, now and in the years to come, you will find the study of science leading you into fascinating pursuits. Photography. Collecting. Why study science? Study science because you will find in the study of science 
a richer, more rewarding life.